0: Hello and welcome to Born to Dance, the podcast for Matthew Bourne's New Adventures that explores and questions why dance moves, inspires and excites us. My name is Paul Smithhurst, resident artist for New Adventures and your host. Each week I will be joined by members of our extended family to talk about their journey through dance and how it has impacted their lives. It is almost impossible, when thinking about dance, not to think about music. Influential choreographer George Balanchine famously said that dance is music made visible. And certainly this beautiful alchemy of two art forms powerfully defines the work of Matthew Bourne's New Adventures. Our guest today has a magical gift of breathing life into the music that the dancers embody. He is a renowned conductor and musical director whose international career specialising in classical and contemporary dance is underpinned by his deeply sensitive understanding of the relationship between composition and choreography. From his debut with Opera New Zealand in 1993, he has gone on to work with an astonishing number of acclaimed dance companies. And in 2013, he was made an associate artist of New Adventures in recognition of his artistic contribution to the company. Brett Morris, welcome to Born to Dance.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. It's very nice of you to ask me and I'm looking forward to talking to you. It's such a pleasure to
0: have you with us today. How are you?
1: Well, I'm actually pretty good. I've got through the lockdown, as we all have, and uh, very much looking forward to getting back into live performance.
0: Yes. And can you give us a little insight into the next time you're going to be conducting? Is it with us?
1: Indeed. Well, we have a season of Nutcracker coming up very shortly. And uh, so I'll be conducting most of the performances of that at Sadler's Wells. This is a a long-delayed production because we were to be doing it last Christmas. And So, in fact, the preparation for it began about three years ago. So uh, it's nice to actually finally have a chance to do it. And, of course, it's a a familiar piece to me. I mean, I've obviously done it in many different versions, but uh, certainly Matt's version I think I must have done first in... Two thousand and one, two thousand and two, something like that. So it will be nice to uh, come back to it after a gap of, I think, ten years. Was I think we did in two thousand and eleven, actually.
0: Yeah, it's it's just such an exciting thought to think that we're going to have live performance happening again. Mm. How do you feel about being back in the pits?
1: I think there has to be a certain amount of adrenaline in order to really focus and concentrate and to give a, an energized performance. Of course, it's a two year gap, really. I mean, we just finished doing the red shoes at Sadler's Wells and then the pandemic struck. So I've had a that's a, a long gap, two years, really. So, yes, it w- I think it will be a little bit strange. I hope I can remember <laughs> what
0: to do. <laughs> I have no doubts about uh, that. You
1: well, are. and we've got a very nice group of players together for, for this season. A lot of people we've worked with for many, many years. And uh, we have a good rapport, both socially but also musically, which is absolutely crucial. Uh, and they're, they're a very responsive group of players, which is, of course, important in all music, but particularly in dance, where they can't hear what's going on. And I'm the sort of conduit between the stage and the and the musicians. So it will be nice to see familiar faces and to play one of the most wonderful scores that Tchaikovsky has written.
0: Mm, It truly is. We are going to get stuck into your work with our company and Mm. your work conducting dance in, in a few moments. But to kick things off, we're going to backtrack a little bit. And I'm going to ask you this question. When was the last
1: time you danced? Oh, well, now you'd have to go back quite a long way (laughs) for that. Uh, Yes, I've always been rather self-conscious. And uh, indeed, at school, we had things, formal dances that we had to learn, things like the Valita and the Maxina and all this sort of thing. And I always used to take refuge playing the piano for these things so I could escape having to do them. I've never really enjoyed that form of expression myself. I'm admiring of those who have the skill to do it and feel confident doing it. I think for me, it's never really been a place of great confidence. So I have been reluctantly dragged up on dance floors at things like weddings and and that, but I'm more of a wallflower when it comes to dancing. I appreciate other people doing it, obviously, and I spend a lot of my life and have spent a lot of my life around people who do it very well. So the last time would be about six or seven years ago at a wedding. Okay, when I'd had too much to drink. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that certainly helps. Um, yeah, loosen us up, doesn't it? So you said that there was dancing at your school. Take us back to that time. So you grew up in Auckland, did you? In 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 the seventies.
1: Well, a child of the sixties. I was born in sixty-five in Auckland, and I mean, we we did have these. Uh, sort of enforced dance lessons certainly at primary school and intermediate school
0: i have to admit you said two dance forms that i don't even know what they are Ah,
1: okay so uh,
0: are they sort of um
1: uh, sort of formal dances sort of like if you think of like, sort of scottish country dancing we think of dancing that has a formal pattern to it and you would have to learn the sequence and Yes, and,
0: uh, we would have a barn dance. That would yes, be the, the exactly. English equivalent, I guess. Yeah,
1: that sort of thing. So so we had those. We learnt them originally actually it's all coming back now. We learnt them to a gramophone record. But that the gramophone record of course was rather inflexible. So I remember because I was already playing the piano a lot by that stage, I remember the, the whoever was taking us for these dancing lessons saying could you play do you think you could play this because we want to be able to start and stop and it was a faff with the record and all mm-hmm. that. so i did and and I was I was greatly relieved that I could stop having to try to remember this complicated series of steps, and uh, and I could play the piano, which was which was a, a big refuge of mine right throughout my childhood. So I could sort of do what I felt I was doing best, and uh, and watch other people sort of falling over. And-, <laughs> yeah.
0: and would you say then that was perhaps one of your earliest encounters of that synergy between? dance and and music like and, and your involvement in that your contribution towards
1: that. I, I suppose if yes if I'd, I'd never thought of it like that but certainly in terms of my involvement with it that that would have actually been true yeah
0: I still think that you offered up your amazing talents to just get out of dancing
1: that's that's <laughs> absolutely right I did I was very pleased to to be relegated to the sidelines yeah and how
0: brilliant that now your career is shaping and, and, and providing that music that people dance to, almost mm. like you were doing back, back then. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into conducting?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I was always going to be a musician. There was never really any question about that. And, and I started quite young. And my father was a pianist, and he encouraged me in that. Uh, I was encouraged by my teachers at school. And one of my teachers ran a local youth orchestra, conducted a local youth orchestra, and she asked me uh, if I would play Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue with a youth orchestra. And I suppose I would have been about 13, maybe, something like that. And I I played that, but of course I went along to all the rehearsals, and that was like a a door opening to a different area um, of possibility. So I asked if I could assist her. So I started working with kids like myself, doing sectional rehearsals and covering her. And then she said, well, we've got a concert coming up. Would you like to conduct something? I said, I'd love to. And of course, when, you, when you're very young, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. So I went ahead and did it. I wanted to have some conducting lessons. So I, I approached somebody... Of course, in in New Zealand as a whole, but even in Auckland, there wasn't much of a professional music scene. So there were very few people to approach. But I approached a man called Juan Mateucci, who had been the conductor of the National Orchestra and had a very important international career, particularly in the field of opera. And he sort of took me under his wing. And uh, eventually I sort of got my main conducting break through him because I was I was covering him in a season of Lucia de Lammermoor, the opera by Donizetti, and he became rather ill in the week before the opening and I had covered all the rehearsals and I stepped in and it's, things just sort of unfolded. I feel that quite a bit in my life that I haven't necessarily set out to do so- something, but things have come my way, and I've often been very fortunate in that, actually. Mm.
0: I think it's really beautiful that you tell that story that it was actually a a teacher that that maybe saw that potential in you, or it was perhaps a sliding doors moment into an an, an offering uh, into a, a different direction. Please excuse my ignorance, but... Is conducting something that you that you that you studied as a as a sort of you know at a university or something like that, or or was it very much a shadowing mentoring? Do you you sort of learn learn as you go? Could you tell us a bit?
1: Well, you do learn as you go. As I say, I studied privately with Juan, and then I came to London uh, to study with a eminent British conductor called Norman Del Mar. So then, I I studied at the Royal College as well. I studied conducting as my first study, and piano accompaniment uh, as my second study. So it was a combination of two of the the, of both things uh, of mentoring and watching and learning and actually being taught. But you really learn by doing it. It's it's the hardest thing in that way uh, because you can't go home and practice. And so it's it's a rather hair raising business. And of course you learn by your mistakes that's what we all do and uh, th- that can be quite difficult and thankfully musicians were very patient with me and still are it's an ongoing de- developmental process i think mm.
0: and a huge responsibility as w- as well and i'd never thought about how potentially exposing it is to be that like you said that conduit I love that word that conduit between the the two things between the stage and and the orchestra and I'm really intrigued how you ended up conducting for for dance is that something that you thought would be in your future or is something perhaps that you learned or or studied because your first job was for opera so could you tell us a little bit about that kind of transition into that relationship with with dance as a form
1: yeah, well, actually, to go back a bit further, actually, my first two professional jobs were working in theatre. There were two professional theatre companies in Auckland one was called Theatre Corporate and one was called Mercury Theatre. And Mercury Theatre did musicals as well as straight plays, and they also took over the functioning of the National Opera Company when it went bankrupt. So I think that's quite important because. It's about being drawn to working collaboratively in the theatre. That's been the direction that I got into quite early and I've stayed in because it has felt the right sort of place for me. When I lived in New Zealand, uh, conducted for the Royal New Zealand Ballet, I did a... But only one thing, I did a, a gala evening. I mean, I must have been mad to have said yes because you will know that's the most difficult thing for any conductor to do. You've got excerpts from maybe... Fifteen or twif- twenty different pieces, and all those partadors, de and I mean, I thank goodness I knew nothing about it because it, it, it was rather terrifying. That's all I'd really done when I came to England a- as a student. The way I paid my way through college was playing for dance classes, and once again, I didn't really know anything about it. I'd had a couple of introductions, so I went to London Contemporary Dance School uh, and London Contemporary Dance Theatre and a, f- a few other places, and I just sort of learned on the job for, for doing that. And I was always quite good at improvising. And I, I, once again, I had very patient people who were teaching classes who had been around for years, people like Ronnie Emblin and Anita Young and Brenda Last, uh, you know, people who'd worked with the Royal for years and just knew how to translate actually dance into music. My first job was at Northern Ballet, then was known as Northern Ballet Theatre, and then I, through Ian Webb, who used to be a ballet master for Matt's company, I was playing for freelance classes for him, he said, oh, you must come and work for our company. So I did, and that's how I met Etta. Etta, Etta Murfit, for those who don't know, is Associate Artistic Director of New Adventures, and I said, you know, if you ever need anyone to conduct, she said, well, Give give us your CV.
0: Serendipity or fate. Mm. we'll never know. Mm. You used to play for Mm. company class. I Mm. never knew that.
1: Yeah. Oh i feel like Um,
0: i missed out on that brett (laughs) what would you what kind of music would you play for for company class
1: well the the company class could have been ballet or contemporary and so you know it would be very i i used to improvise everything i know lots of ballet pianists just like tunes and companies where you're you're doing class every day people like tunes that they can sing along to and things like that but i always felt it never really served the dance very well so I like to watch the setting of the exercise or hear the setting of the exercise and think about what would match or you know what would be a nice counterpoint and just to try to make it as interesting as possible. And I suppose that's probably why any skills I've developed in that area have developed because of watching and listening and trying to intuitively, I think, to some degree, make the two work together. Mm.
0: I just want to say thank you for for that beautiful insight into into class accompanists because it's something that people might not think about, and I think it is such a skill. Um, what was the first piece of dance that you that you conducted? Can can you remember what that was?
1: Oh yeah, well it, I mean apart from that mishmash of <laughs> uh, that gala in Willington. yes, it w- it would have been Swan Lake, Christopher Gable's production of Swan Lake in Sheffield on a midweek matinee <laughs> I can I can remember it very well because there was an opening coming up there and uh, and I'd, I'd applied for it, it was as a staff conductor which meant actually you, you'd conduct two or three shows a week and you'd play piano for all the rehearsals and you'd play class two or three times a week so it was a very busy job uh, a great way to learn a lot about dance obviously, so I'd ap- applied for that and I'd done, I'd played for class and I played for some rehearsals that had all gone well I would played for the, their music director John Price Jones and he was happy with my work so they said well you know we better see you conduct something do you know Swan Lake and I said of course I, I'd never conducted it I didn't know it at all but I wasn't going to say that obviously <laughs> so I said yes of course and so they gave me a, a, a matinee to conduct in Sheffield I hastily learned Swan Lake, you know, on the days when you'd get a video of the production, you'd learn it from the video. And uh, and then with no rehearsal, you'd just go and do the show. And that's what I did. And anyhow, it must have been good enough because they offered me the, the job after that.
0: It makes my palms sweat just thinking about you in that position. And then you found your way to our family which mm. we're so grateful for and have conducted Swan Lake many times and I have been one of the swans that have danced Indeed. to your to your wonderful conducting you were playing as an accompanist and then offered your services as a conductor and and how, how did that begin like how does that happen did, did Matt did you have to have a meeting with Matthew did how does it um, kind of come into being
1: um <laughs> i'm sure it's different for everybody uh, all i know is that i received a phone call from david frame who used to who was the founder and musical director of matthew's company saying now i've got your cv and we're looking for someone to do the last two weeks of the tour would you be interested i mean Could have knocked me over with a feather. Would I be interested? Of course I'd be interested. And, of course, I'd seen the company. I'd seen the company do Swan Lake at the Piccadilly, and I I was completely blown away by it. So the idea that I'd actually get a chance to conduct it was extraordinary. So I said, yes, absolutely. So I did those last two weeks of the tour. Very sadly, David Frame was very unwell at that stage, and he died shortly after. And the, the, the Swan Lake was going into the Dominion uh, for a short London run, maybe four weeks or something like that, six weeks. And so they asked if the company asked if I'd do that, which I did. I never thought that by doing Swan Lake it would lead to anything. I just was grateful to do it, and I must have done it reasonably well enough, and I enjoyed getting on with people. Very nice, very lovely company, you know. Which is not always the case in dance, you know. People are. It's a very demanding art form and people people can be very highly struggling. There's a lot of pressure and it can make people not be at their best. And that was never the feeling in this company. It never has been. So I was very fortunate. So that was 1999, 2000, and I've been with the company ever since. Mm.
0: And we're so fortunate to have you and you bring such a, a depth of that understanding. And for me, having danced to the music that you've conducted... There really is this this sensitivity and responsiveness to your conducting, and I was thinking before we had this conversation about that relationship between the dancer on stage and and the the music, but particularly the conductor. I think naively when I came into the industry, I just thought the orchestra would play the music, and we would dance and then from touring and, and performing many times you you start to understand what a magician <laughs> I think the conductor is and you feel that synergy the alchemy that that relationship that interplay and I can almost feel you being with us and it's such a beautiful thing I wonder if you could just touch on that and and paint that picture what what does it mean to you to conduct for dance and that relationship between dance and, and music
1: well uh... It's, an, it's a really big question and an interesting one, I think. One of the roles is that you're a conduit between what's happening on stage and, and what's happening in the pit. So that's one of the roles. You know, musicians, if they're playing in a pit for any, any other form that involves singing, if they can hear exactly what's going on, they're, they're going to be influenced by that. Of course, that's not the case at all with dance. So someone has to emotionally communicate what is actually happening, particularly in dance theatre, which is obviously Matt's form of dance. So you have to communicate the emotional intensity of what's going on to the players so that that supports the dramatic intensity of what's going on on stage. Obviously, you also have to make the music sound good and be attentive to that and give the musicians your full attention And create an atmosphere where people play well together, where they're listening together, where they feel part of something together. That's a a big part of it. And to keep a piece alive, particularly if you're doing multiple performances. Then there's the preparation uh, with the dancers, which varies depending on the situation—a new piece of revival, you know, whether it's classical or contemporary, all that sort of thing. Uh, but for me, once I know, I always start with learning the piece musically, you know, because I think until you've done that, you, that's my sort of anchor. But then what I would do is either through attending rehearsals or looking at recordings if it's a revival, I I learn the choreography as much as I can. And, you know, obviously I haven't done dance training, but I have been around enough to be able to notate. So I notate my score. With anything where I'm going to have to pay particular attention, I mean, big group numbers or whatever, people are going to have to take that from me. But although I do need to know what to look for, you know, if I'm thinking of elevation or if I'm thinking of something that's slower and and how much time people need but not too much time so that they're going to be uncomfortable. The more familiar with that I get, the better. And And I suppose I spend a lot of time, both consciously and unconsciously, thinking about this relationship between the two things. How can I make the music fit what I'm seeing how can I get inside the music myself and mine it for what's there because that's what will have inspired the choreographer Mm. and so if we're both serving the same thing then we're on the we're on the right track and then then of course I talk you know I talk to the dancers I will ask them about not only about technically what they need but I will think with them about their characterization that's something Matt and I will talk about quite a bit and and I like being in rehearsals because you pick up things and you, you're inspired by ideas or images come to mind. And that's all part of the process. And then I think ideally what you try to do is forget all of that mm. when you come to the show and trust that you've done your preparation well enough that you can then get into the business of performing Uh, which is sort of bringing the whole thing together. The conductor really can make or break things, and I don't just mean in terms of danceable tempi or something like that. I mean in terms of the pacing of a production, in terms of where you need to take time and have a moment of stillness Mm -hmm. where people hold their breath or where you need to really be driving towards a finale or all that dramatic intensity, I think, uh, you have to... That's the conductor's role, really, is bringing all that together. But I, I think, unless you've done your preparation, your homework, both musically and choreographically, it's very difficult to do that. You have to learn every note of every instrument. You have to learn all the choreography. You have to spend, you know, take the time it takes to have that internalized in a way that it's there and you don't need to be consciously thinking about it or worrying about it or whatever, because that will completely get in the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely there's, there's an exercise in being completely present as well So like you said, you've done all that preparation But then you're there in the moment And you're reacting or responding, perhaps is a better word To what is happening before your eyes Are there any examples of where that has really caught you off guard Or, or, or uh, you've, you've found that challenging or, or exciting is, is, it, is it always a different?
1: Every well, time, the ideal would be it's always different. That you have a you have a format, you have a structure. The aim is that you're trying to give yourself over to a process of performing. So inevitably, that's going to be different. Just learning it, the whole phenomenon of of performance is is fascinating. Actually, you know, you can do something in the studio and everyone can be happy. And if you do that in the performance, no one will be happy. And that's the same for musicians as well. So it is about doing your preparation and then being free and having enough flexibility. And I think for me, when I've enjoyed working with dancers the most, it's been collaborative, Mm -hmm. and I mean in the moment. So it's not that the conductor is following the dancer necessarily, and it's not that the dancer is following the conductor. The, The most rewarding thing is when there's a spontaneity and that's of course what happens with the musicians too when i started my conducting career i thought it was all about directing showing people what you wanted and and laying down the law now of course some of that is important but actually most of it is not about that i've realized it took me a long time to learn that lesson it's about listening to other people and facilitating them within a structure to spontaneously give their best. And I think that's the same with the dancers too. So when I've had the good fortune of working with what I would say musical dancers, people who listen to the music and can hear things and can respond, that's for me, what it, that's a very satisfying experience. And it's very interesting when you see people who've only ever worked to recorded music encounter live music it can be absolutely terrifying for them. You can see that, that you know, they're used to hearing something in a very set way, and no matter how good it is. And it's very interesting to watch people develop. Mm. Like when we did the tour of Romeo and Juliet um, in 2019, where we had live music everywhere, and young people coming and being part of that. I would say most of those young people had never worked with live musicians before. You'd see by the end of a week of performances they'd shifted they'd Mm. really grown and developed and liking the fact that there was some flexibility
0: absolutely agree and i'm so excited for people to listen and to just understand a little bit more about that whole process So we ask all of our guests about the most impactful piece of dance that they've seen. And you mentioned Pina Bausch's 1980. What, can you paint the picture? Where were you when you watched it? What is it about this piece that made you choose it for us today?
1: I, I mean, I, it's hard to know where to begin with it because it is such a classic and it's such a big piece. I mean, it's four hours long. And uh, it was made in 1980, shortly after Pina Bausch had lost her partner. So it has a very melancholic, uh, bittersweet quality that suffuses the whole piece, I think. But it's also extraordinarily funny uh, and diverting, but absolutely grounded in humanity. I think that's one of the really strong characteristics of her work, about what it is to be a person from all sorts of different angles. And there's not actually a lot of pure dance in it. So it is this combination of movement and drama, which takes you, I think, on an incredible emotional journey. In a way, sort of through the lifespan, it starts off in a very sort of infantile place and puts you in touch with the foibles of humanity as we grow and develop. And I found it incredibly moving. I, I, I've only seen it live once, uh, it's not done very often for for obvious reasons. It's a, it's a long piece. The stage has to be covered in green grass. I, I just think it is quite extraordinary. Um, and one of the things that's also quite extraordinary in it is that there are still a handful of, I think, about four people who were in the original production in 1980 who still have performed it. And when I saw it in 2014 at Sadler's Wells, Four of them were still in it, which I think is, you know, I think there's something quite tearful sort of thinking of it. People who've spent their whole life doing something really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a a very moving thing, I think, to see artists performing. Uh, I, I had the same reaction when I went to see the Paco Pena company, I remember that, you know, just thinking... These are people who spend their whole life doing this really well.
0: And I think that's what's so special about that company is that they break down that perception of who can be a dancer, Mm. whatever that label means. And I think that is a real that we really like like to celebrate on on this podcast is that Mm. dance is for everybody Mm. and no matter what your age is or you know and you're talking about people that have lived and breathed it for their whole lives Mm. and they are still able to be given that opportunity to share this innate gift that they have with everybody
1: Mm. well Um, and that it's it's got better mm. it's about a maturation so, you're often revisiting pieces over and over and over again and finding something new, finding something deeper, which I think is quite remarkable. You know, that you can have done something many times and suddenly you hear something new or you see something new or something, a penny drops that something falls into place that you hadn't seen before. And, you know, I think that's the essence of live performance is the. Spontaneous way that happens. Mm.
0: I can really resonate with that. I have done Matthew Swan Lake. I think five tours. I can't even. I couldn't even count how many times I've danced that piece. And the remarkable thing is that every time it's different, and every time I come to it and and discover something new, and that is the beauty of of live performance, really. And 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 growing as an artist and. Learning more about yourself as a human being, and then bringing that, you know, to what you do, and finding a, a deeper connection with it and an authenticity. I mm. think that you that you have off off stage that you can bring mm. on stage. Yeah. So we are going to slightly change pace and talk about music, which we have been doing all podcasts, but we have asked you to let us know what your favourite piece of music is to dance to. Now, we obviously said at the beginning that dancing is not your favourite thing, so I can't wait to hear where and when you dance to this piece. Uh, You chose I Won't Dance by Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields, played by the Oscar Peterson trio, and we're going to just listen to a little clip of it now. I'm really intrigued about a few things. Firstly, when when do you dance to this piece of music? I'm trying to imagine it. I know you very well, and I'm like, oh, I just I want to see it.
1: I'll spare you that, Paul. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, this is the this is the question that terrified me the most because you know I, I really feel t- terribly uh, unconfident and uh, self-conscious uh, about dancing. So I thought I wanted to choose something. That had some sort of meaning for me, even though it's not something I would dance to, and uh, and I chose it because obviously the title "I Won't Dance" and it's a wonderful piece, Jerome Kern, and Dorothy Fields, but also Oscar Peterson, who was one of my great heroes. You know, when I was a when I was a teenager, I was very interested in jazz piano and as well as classical. I did both, and and my father was a great pianist and very interested in. Uh, Oscar Peterson's work and I just thought the combination uh, of me trying to play like Oscar Peterson and not dance (laughs) was probably far more accurate than than anything else I could give you (laughs) okay
0: I'll take it I'll take it do you think there's anything to do with the fact that you work so consistently with professional dancers that you know do it for a a career that makes you feel slightly alienated from that, or
1: um, uh, no, I wouldn't say so because I think actually m- most of the dancers I've worked with are so lovely. I think it really just goes a very, very long way back for me. As a child, I was deeply self conscious mm. and, and not in a pleasant way and felt very uncomfortable with myself, so you know. I stopped eating anchovies when I was 40 because I thought sophisticated people in, eat anchovies and I hated them and by the time I turned 40 I thought I don't have to eat anchovies anymore and now I realise I don't have to dance and, you know <laughs> I don't have to other people can take care of the dancing I, I'll do something else.
0: Brilliant, beautiful, and you know this podcast is called Born to Dance, and and it's about the love of dance. And I oh, think I love dance. That's oh, what, what I mean. mean. Yeah, that's no, why that's why you're here, and yeah. that's why we want to hear from you because there is there's, there's a spectrum, isn't there? of of how we can love dance and how we can engage with dance and in my role as resident artist I am constantly searching for different ways that people can participate and engage with dance and recently I've been really thinking about what does engagement with dance mean and I don't think it always means having to do it Mm. I think there's something about the act of sitting and watching especially live dance Mm. that is so transformative and listen if brett morris is happy to conduct for dance or sit and watch dance then that's a beautiful thing and learn about it you know Mm. i think
1: it's i think it's a really interesting art form hugely diverse huge range of things to learn about and to understand and you know yeah i think i think engagement could mean any number of those things Mm
0: we're going to move on to a bit of a quick fire round to close to close (laughs) that was a groan everybody it's going to be fine it's going to be fine a quick fire round brett to um close us off for today's episode and we're starting with a bit of a word association Mm. so i'm going to say the name of a matthew bourne show and i'd like you to say the first word that comes into your head without thinking are you ready yeah Swan Lake Feathers Feathers Carman Garage Edward Scissorhands Topiary Cinderella War Nutcracker Sweetie Land Romeo and Juliet Young Love Beautiful, thank you so much. And following on from that, if you could turn any story, film or book into a Matthew Bourne production, what would you pick?
1: Right. Uh Now, I should have thought about this because I know you've asked other guests, but I haven't actually given it any thought at
0: all. Now, that's good. That's why it comes into our quickfire
1: round. Well, I I just suddenly had a thought about Remains of the Day, actually. Mm. Something very small and tortured and expression, uh, you know, full of expression, maybe.
0: Okay. interesting. What what music would that be?
1: Well, I think Terry would have to write the music.
0: Okay, Terry, if you're listening... Yeah Stop he's
1: thinking. he's very good at evoking atmosphere. Mm. Yeah, I think something you know very deeply painful about that story and mm. uh yeah, could be very evocative.
0: Mm. I think it's it's so interesting when you look at the breadth of Matthew's work, and he he really plays between almost two two sides of a coin or, or you know two ends of a spectrum.
1: Well, he's also often preoccupied with um, people who are on the periphery mm. and who don't necessarily fit in and can't find a straightforward way into anything. You could see that in just about every piece. Absolutely. And I could see part of that as, you know, as being quite important.
0: Mm. What is one piece of advice you would give to the next generation wanting to get into the arts industry?
1: Well, if I, I was just trying to think about my situation, I suppose that I never said no to anything and worked really hard. Go for everything, you, you know, anything that comes your way. You never know where it'll lead. I certainly couldn't couldn't have foreseen any of this, but I've always worked really really hard, and I think there's no substitute for that. And I think if you don't want to do that, do something else because there's no point in doing it. You, you know, I think I think hard work is uh, is quite essential. Mm, thank you. If you could
0: pass on the love of dance to somebody or a group who may not have the chance to experience
1: it, who would it be and why? I think um, any young people who might not ordinarily come across dance, I was one of those young people. I hadn't, apart from we, we talked about the sort of formal dances that I was taught at school, but in terms of actual dance performance, I was exposed to it through a contemporary dance company that had only been formed a couple of years that did a lot of theatre and education stuff, and uh, which was a very new school and a small school. They performed in the gymnasium. That was the only space we had, and that it's not that it, my career in dances flowed from that, as you understand, but but it it opened up a possibility that had never previously existed. That people could actually do that. That people actually made their living dancing, and that it took you into something a completely different realm inside yourself, and so I think. If, if anyone can be exposed I would say to any of the arts but we're thinking about dance and young people can be exposed that wouldn't ordin- ordinarily have the chance to be exposed I couldn't think of anything better than that
0: That is the most beautiful place to wrap up our conversation Thank you so much for being a gorgeous guest and incredibly interesting and insightful.
1: Thank you very much for asking me Paul, I've enjoyed it
0: If you enjoyed this episode, then please go check out our other episodes, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast and YouTube. If you want to know more about New Adventures, then check out the links in our show notes. I have been your host, Paul Smethurst. This series has been produced by Hattie Moyer and our researcher is Stephen Daly. The theme music is by Terry Davies from the production Play Without Words. For more information about the additional music in this episode, please check the show notes. This has been Born to Dance, brought to you by New Adventures. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Bye for now.